HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Once again, it's Thursday at 1 o'clock and you are tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. We're coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we're on the line with Ken Jaffe of Slope Farms. Ken, welcome to the show. Hi there, Erin. Nice um, to be here. Great. Great to have you on. So I want to jump right in. You run a, a beef farm operation up in the Catskills. Why don't you give us a little bit of history on, on how you got into farming and then maybe tell us a little bit about the animals that you guys work with. Sure. So we have slope farms and we raise grass-fed beef. And we're in the northwestern Catskills in a little town called Meredith. Uh, it's about 150 miles northwest of New York City. Um, I'm actually originally a Brooklyn boy myself, um, <laughs> and so we have about 170 head of cattle. So they're, you know, a, a um, brood cows, you know, the mothers, and then we raise the little ones up. Um, and mostly we're selling wholesale down to restaurants and butcher shops and retail places down in New York City, including actually a lot of our beef comes down to Brooklyn. Yeah, I saw that you guys are, are selling over at the Park Slope Food Co-op. Um, I feel like I remember that kind of contentious debate a few years ago when they decided to bring meat in, and so it's exciting to see that, that they're able to support um, a farm so close to home. And what, um, what kind of, uh, what kind of cat cows are you working with? Well, we have a mixed herd. I, mean, I would say that, you know, in terms of grass-fed beef, um, we and a bunch of other people in the Northeast are trying to, you know, return the genetics of the beef herd to animals that do well in our climate, which is cold in the winter, obviously. Well, not so cold this winter, yeah, right. uh, but generally cold, generally cold in the winter, and, and to uh, finish well on grass, which means uh, finish in a reasonable amount of time and get fat on grass alone because, you know, the genetics of the beef population in the United States is geared towards uh, feedlot production, which is still the overwhelming majority of it, you know, so 
taken away from their mothers at six months and then spending, or six months to a year and then spending, you know, a few months standing knee-deep in their own excrement, eating corn mm-hmm. and being fed antibiotics and hormones, et cetera. So, you know, we're, we have a different approach, which is to, but it's sort of recreating this sort of genetics of the way cattle have been previously for the previous several million years, right. which was, you know, to to be healthy on grass and to be mobile from place to place and not standing in one place. So uh, so our genetics are, I would say, predominantly Angus, but we have a mixed herd. So we have our my current bull is a Hereford bull, which is kind of a brown and white animal. And we have some other breeds in there, a little bit of Scottish Highland, gives us sort of warmer coats in the winter. Those are the long-haired ones with the big horns. Um, and some Simmental, which is a what they call a continental breed. How long have you been farming in the area or farming in general? We've been doing this for nine years. Okay. And you know, it's expanded, basically expanded every year. Um, you know, the demand for grass-fed beef currently is in excess of the supply. But, you know, it's catching up. Part of it was processing processing and distribution problems, and there's definitely more processing available, so more plants have opened near us. And the distribution is getting, I wouldn't say easy, but a little bit more um, set up, so it's possible to get the meat down to the city, which is really where the market is. I mean, you know, our whole county, which takes you like two hours to drive across, is 46,000 people. Okay, wow. Which is like half the people that lived in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. (laughs) Yeah, I think I feel like that's so crazy sometimes. I feel like I'm walking by buildings that have more people in them than my entire hometown, which was yeah. about, you know, 3,000 people. So I, I definitely yeah. get that, you know, the scale and the density. And I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes us really lucky here in New York State is to have these really amazing kind of metropolis that needs to be fed, essentially. Um, so why beef? I mean, um, how did you guys decide that that was going to be the, the the farming of choice for you? Uh, well, you know, the region that we're in and much of New York State used to be dairy production. And the number of dairy farms has shrunk to a small fraction of what it was. So there actually is an immense amount of grassland up here, which is extremely productive. You know, the amount of water we get is amazing compared to much of the rest of the country. Uh, so, you know, at least where we are especially, you know, even further out west in New York, um, it's, it, that's really the best thing to grow here is grass. And, and the natural ecosystem is, is a combination of grazing animals, ruminants, animals that can eat grass, and grass production. So, um, so really, it was looking around and thinking about what what was going to replace dairy, and you know, because we we were drawn into this. You know, actually, what led me into this, I was actually studying public health at Columbia, believe it or not, and I got very interested in the relationship between how we feed animals and human nutrition, and you know, the different the different nutritional value and the different fat properties of animals that are fed grass and finished on grass versus animals that are fed corn and the healthier profile. And that sort of got me into thinking about 
grass-fed beef in general, and then I started to sort of think of it as um, as sort of an economic development tool for much of upstate New York, which is struggling in part because of the loss of the farming economy from dairy. Um, so it sort of, for me, it was a kind of the intersection of really delicious food, human nutrition, um, farmland preservation, and economic development, where those things overlap. And so, so can you just talk a little bit, too, about more systematically, like, you know, why is it that dairy production wouldn't work, but but beef production would work. I mean, both of both obviously are dealing with cows. Both need access to to pasture on some extent. But why do you think that? You know, what do you think are some of the main systematic reasons that one is kind of declining and one is increasing? Yeah. Well, I would say in the region where there are in further western western part of New York, uh, there are some dairy farms that are thriving. They have dairy large farms. You know, they'll have you know, 1,000 to 5,000 uh, uh, milking cows. And they are generally on land that's flatter because in addition to feeding the animals grass, they're also feeding them grain. So uh, they're on soils that are better for grain production. They're flatter, so it's much more conducive to using large um, machines safely and efficiently and also not destroying the equipment in the process. Where we are, it's very hilly and very rocky, and the soil is really not so good for, um, for growing row crops like grains, like corn or soybeans. And also it's hilly enough that you plow these, these hills and then, you know, two years later the soil is down in the Delaware River or in the, in where we are actually goes into the Chesapeake. Bay, believe it or not, because we're on the Susquehanna watershed. So there, there's a lot in, in the hillier areas like where we are. There are a lot of uh, the smaller hill farms just could not compete economically against the larger scale uh, farms for milk. And also the milk prices are set um, elsewhere. You know, it's kind of an arcane system, which is arcane and opaque. And it's... Um, it's 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 just really really hard to make it work financially. I mean there, you know, I mean it's interesting because there is actually now more of a a regional a demand for regional meat or regional produced beef or other meat products, but the the regional thing for dairy hasn't quite happened the same way for reasons that I'm not entirely clear on. Yeah. And, you know, actually there's still the amount of milk being produced in New York State is similar to what it was in the past, but it's being produced by many, many, many fewer uh, farms and many, many, many fewer acres. Uh, it's generally the animals are generally kept in confinement, most of them. They're not even grazing. So there used to be lots of small farms, you know, you know 30 to 300 acres, say, mm-hmm. you know, a few cows to 100 cows. But that's, that's sort of almost a thing of the past now. So it's sort of get big or get out. Right. Um, you know, but what's left is, you know, lots of incredible pasture, grassland. So, you know, according to the agricultural census and according to 
Cornell, um, there's 3 million acres of pasture land that's unused in New York State or underutilized, which is kind of a hard number to get your head wrapped around. But just to put it in context, that's enough grassland to produce all the beef eaten in New York City. Wow, really? That's without, you know, without feedlots, without the Midwest, without hormones, without antibiotics, you know, for grass-based production. Now, realistically, realistically, all 3 million acres is not going to be put into production of beef, but it just gives you a sense of the scale of the resource. Sure. And, I mean, I definitely, like, land, it seems, is really the one of the biggest, you know, resources that we have in New York State, but something that is, at the same time, really kind of under constant threat, especially, uh, you know, in areas close to the city. There's a yeah. lot of development pressure. And, you know, we um, on the show here are, had last week some producers from the Catskills, and we'll have a few more on. And I wonder if you could just talk a bit. You've, you know, you've touched on some of the issues, um, but what about the Catskills region is unique um, with regards to, you know, beef production, but also just farming in general? Do you have things that set you apart from other parts of, of the country or the state or things that you're like, we really are happy with these things, but kind of, you know, are suffering in these other areas, anything that kind of jumps out to you? Well, uh, the Catskills, I would say what it's known for traditionally has been, um, there's a lot of uh, maple sh- maple production here, maple sugar, so that's one of the the items, it was traditionally a dairy area, and it's not so, you know, it's really over the past 40 years that there's been a gradual decline. So, I mean, what, it's, what it has as a competitive advantage is, is lots of water, lots of rainfall, which is very conducive towards, um, towards grasslands, which are, you know, what you need for grazing animals. And it has you know, it's cool in the summertime. I mean, I talked recently to folks down in South Carolina, and down there, they, you know, it's too hot for the animals. They have, you know, it's almost too hot for the animals to graze in the summertime. So they're not really gaining any weight in the summer. Up here, you know, we have incredible, I mean, and compared to out west where there's more animals on rangeland, they need like anywhere between 30 and 50 acres for one head of cattle. We can have one cattle on one acre. That's how much more productive the grassland is here. Oh, wow. Wow. We have, and also we're close to the market. You know, we have a very large market in New York City. And, you know, farming in our region, in the Catskills, was always really, quote, an export market to New York City. I mean, the economic development in this area, from an agricultural point of view or, or, or lumber point of view, was always towards uh, producing to New York City. I mean, in fact, outside my window is a little tiny road, which is called the Catskill Turnpike, which was built in 1803, which was actually built as a toll road to get agricultural products down to New York. Um, and, um, you know, it went from the western Catskills and actually all the way out to Ithaca at one point, and it went to the Hudson River. So people were able to walk their animals towards the river and then ship them down on barges to the city. It was 1803. Wow. Transportation looks a little bit different today, but um, I was Yeah, I wish, I, I wish it was... I, I mean, sometimes I joke it's easier to put a man on the moon than to get beef down to New York City, but it's getting better. 
<laughs> good, good. Well, we're going to take a break in just a minute here. But sure. before we do, I wonder if you can just take us briefly through um, just so we get a sense of time for 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 beef cows. You know, what, what's the gestation sure. period? How long does it take for them to come up to uh, a slaughter weight? And then for, you know, the mothers or, you know, the animals that aren't going to be going to to market on a regular basis, like what their lifespan looks like. Sure. So, um the gestation is nine months, like people. Um, and then from birth to when we have a steer that's ready to go to market, it averages about two years. Some of them 18 months, some is, you know, as far out as like 30 or 30-plus 30 months. So, you know, so from, you know, from a breeding point of view, we make a decision about breeding, and then it's really almost three years later that we know what the finished product is like. So it's... Uh, you can see sort of the dilemma of sort of working on the genetics of it. Yeah, you're not and, turning you know, around and, quickly. Yeah, so, and the, you know, we will, uh, we will, we call finish, meaning get the fat and send them to market, both males and females. Males would be steers and females would be heifers. And uh, some of the heifers go back into the, the cow herd, you know, to reproduce. And I guess if you're going to be, a cow, it's probably better to be a female because they, you know, they stay in the herd a lot longer and have longer lives. They can stay there for, you know, 14, 15, 16 years even. Um, and, you know, the guys are generally end up on somebody's plate in two years unless they're the bull, which, you know, there's very few that are selected uh, to be breeding. <laughs> well, there's that adage, you know, like being a male on the farm is good work if you can get it, right? It's good work if you can get it, yeah. yeah but not but too I many think positions. the females actually kind of rule the roost, even though the, the male, the, the bull likes to posture. But the, the females, the, you know, the cow-calf herd is, you know, 95% female and 1% this large male who's, you know, sort of struts around and... And postures, but the females kind of look over at him like, you know, give it a break. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ken, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about one of the other big issues being discussed in the Catskills, which is fracking. Sure. This program has been sponsored by the Hearst Ranch. At Hearst Ranch, ranch manager Cliff Garrison describes their philosophy. Raising cattle on grass is both an ancient practice and one that is standard in much of the modern world. Sometimes the old ways are the right ways. We believe that our methodology is the right one for us. For more information on their premium grass-fed beef, visit HearstRanch.com. All right, back. You're tuned into the Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network, and we are on the line with Ken Jaffe of Slope Farms. So, Ken, um, you know, we were talking before the break uh, about the life cycle of the cow and and some of the history of of both your farm and the region. And one of the issues that I feel like is is coming across the radar screen in a lot of different ways down here in the city is fracking. So I was hoping maybe you could give us your take on the issue um, from the farmer's perspective. Well, I can give you the take from my perspective uh, as a farmer, which is that I would probably be 
out of business if fracking comes into our area because, um, A, I wouldn't particularly want to live in an area that's an industrial zone, but, you know, more more overtly from a business point of view is my my wholesale customers uh, are not going to be buying uh, meat from places where there's fracking in close proximity. I mean, they've, some of them have said that for publicly, the Park Club Co-op, you know, the folks at Print Restaurant in the city uh, where we sell, we ship them a steer every other week. I know I've had conversations with people, you know, the folks at, at Diner, Marlowe and & Daughters, and they're very concerned. So, um, you know, I, it's, uh, you know, there's more and more concern about the impact of water on the safety of the food supply. Um, because, you know, the fracking chemicals are toxic and, you know, there's problems from a human point of view, but, you know, but livestock are generally drinking from surface water. You know, we, a lot of us drink from wells up here like we do, but, you know, our animals are sometimes drinking from surface water, which is, you know, that run off from ponds or, or, run, or streams that run into ponds. And, and the frequency of surface spills of fracking chemicals is much more frequent than, than groundwater contamination. So, you, you know, you have, you're handling tens of millions of gallons of toxic fluid at each well pad, which is going to be one every square mile. I mean, where we're sitting here, we would probably be able to see four well pads at higher elevations than where our cattle are if there was fracking. And so if there's a spill, it goes downhill and it gets towards... Um, you know, towards the water supply, and that can get incorporated into the into the meat or the milk products. So that that's the that's the hesitancy with your current customer base is they feel like essentially your product would become a contaminated meat. Or there's risk of that, and they don't really know whether it is or not, and there's no system in place to to really determine whether there are problems and. I mean, certainly there's now starting to be some concern at this on the federal level. The head of the CDC um, office, Census Disease Control, um, Environmental um, Health Office, said we need to do more research on the exposure of humans to toxins from food products. This is a letter that he wrote, um, you know, within the past three or four weeks. So, and you know, there's a, just a big study published by two researchers out of Cornell of incidences involving livestock where there were, you know, mass deaths and stillbirths and the whole catalog of kind of gruesome problems related to fracking or associated with fracking. You know, there's really been no systematic study of this yet on a governmental level or even funding of research on it. They were just able to catalog all these case reports, but it's, you know, very um, disturbing. And, and, you know, where we in New York, there is no hydrofracking yet. So we're, you know, we're not really impacted by this. But, you know, obviously there's a lot of deliberation of it. And, um, you know, we're very concerned. That, you know, it's said that it's good for farmers, but my sense is that it's not good for farmers. And for the, the fastest growing segment of farming in New York State is this, this, the sustainable agriculture realm, which is growing rapidly. And... Um, and that's at risk, and it sort of cascades across, you know, because we have, we have the processor who's dependent on us and the truckers and the guy who makes the hay. 
So, you know, if we're out of business, then, you know, all those people are going to have problems. So, you know, the idea of this being a boon in terms of jobs, they really haven't really systematically looked at the negative impact on jobs that will be lost. So fracking is not currently happening in New York State, but what, I mean, where is it at in the process? Um, I mean, and who are the decision makers? And I'm, I'm just, it seems like, um, you know, the information that has kind of come across my desk is a little bit unclear kind of which direction things are coming from and like who's in charge if, if I'm assuming well, someone's in charge, that, right? I mean, is it us? I'm sorry? I mean, is it us? Like, Well, ostensibly, I mean, ultimately, at the moment, uh, Governor Cuomo is in charge. Uh, but he sort of has the, 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 ostensibly, the task has been delegated to the Department of Environmental Conservation in New York State. So they published this, you know, set of rules that would govern fracking. And then they got... You know, they asked for a comment period. They just got something like 61,000 comments, which was, you know, about five times as many or more than they've gotten on anything. And uh, my sense is that over, the overwhelming majority of those were opposed. So there is, you know, growing concern because of, you know, recent uh, reports out of the EPA of uh, contamination of drinking water aquifers in Wyoming and in um in Ohio and, you know, big fines of drillers for contaminating drinking water in Pennsylvania, uh, emergency orders filed in Texas against for benzene in the drinking water um, filed by the EPA. So there's been kind of the last year there's been a flurry of bad incidences that, um, you know, are this, of course, after we we're being told that there was no risk to water at all, and now... Basically, every piece of news you get is a problem. So, um, but you know, in terms of where the re- the regulatory, it, it's at the moment the regulatory decision making is at the state level. I mean, at the local level, it's interesting because local towns are claiming um, the right to regulate this or to at least ban it. You know, using land use law that. Uh, enshrined in the New York State Constitution. So that's being fought out at the court level. Lou? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I heard some people in here. Oh, sorry. (laughs) So, um, you know, that's another thing that's going to play out. Will the court say that towns can ban it? You know, our town, which is a rural farming community, there was a survey done recently, and 80% of the people wanted to ban hydrofracking and want the town to ban hydrofracking. So, you know, if it's permitted, the town will almost certainly ban it in our town. But, so, you know, and so, so it's, it's, the reason it's confusing is because it's confusing at the moment. It's, um, but the ball is in, 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 the, in the state government's court, both on the executive level, at Cuomo's level, and in the court. And are there resources that you would suggest for people who want to engage more on this issue, either just kind of, you know, something where they've aggregated some of the different findings or different um, occurrences that that people can kind of take a look at a website or report and get a sense of the issue? Um, Right. Let me give you one. Unnatural gas, un hyphen, n a t u r a l g a s dot org, unnaturalgas.org. 
which is um, a kind of a regional group, um, which has a lot of good resources and links to other resources. Um, you know, the part of the problem is that, you know, some of the mainstream, the kind of larger national environmental groups have been sort of equivocating on this, and, you know, they're concerned that they have links to to industry, like the Sierra Club recently, there was a report that they took $25 million from Chesapeake, which is the largest fracking, you know, one of the largest gas drilling companies. So whether these people are compromised, whether they have board, some of them have board members, like, you know, NRDC has board members who are in the fracking business. You know, it's a little bit bizarre. But, but it seems like, um, you know, it seems like at least in your region that people have a pretty strong sense of, of which direction they're leaning and, and how it will impact that regional economy in, in years to come. And are kind of taking as a, a strong of a stance as I can essentially to say no to fracking right now. Um, well, I want to... Um, you know, cover a couple of more things uh, with jumping back into the the beef world. And thanks for kind yeah. of speaking on on the fracking issue. I think it's it's something that is um, it's it's good to hear that I'm confused because it's confusing. Um, but um, you had talk- but if you want to reach out and tell somebody you don't want it, con- just contact the governor's office because okay. ultimately the ball is in his court. Excellent. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned a bit earlier in the show and kind of have touched on throughout the the issues with regards to, you know, processing and distribution. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, what what like who, who you use or how you use, um, you know, processing or distribution services and how that maybe has changed over the nine years that you've been in, in business and where you think that's kind of going. Well, when I started, the number of processors was just decreasing, so there was concern there weren't going to be any nearby. And in the past 18 months, actually three USDA-inspected processors have opened up within about an hour, hour, 15 minutes of me. Now, that's not true all across New York State, but that's true sort of this, you know, western Catskill into central New York area. And I know there's moves afoot to build more processing plants. And these are small, you know, well-run, kind of humanely managed, places. They're not like major industrial places. So at this point, you know, the processing may have actually caught up to the, to the, to the animal production end, but, you know, that will be probably temporary. But it's actually freed things up so farmers can expand their herds. Before it was like, well, I can't really put more animals in the pasture because I don't have any way of getting them to market, you know. Uh, so that's evolving. And I think there's been, you know, pressure even from urban people on this, somehow, the idea of processing that kind of bricks and mortar question is something for easier to get their heads wrapped around. And there's been some support from government. So I feel at least moderately optimistic on the processing end. The distribution actually has become better also. Um, I use a group called Regional Access mostly, and they're in the city every week and bring our, our meat down to, you know, to Manhattan and to Brooklyn to, you know, Marlowe and Daughters and Green Grape and... Um, co-op in Park Slope and other places, a new place in Astoria, Butcher Bar just opened, so they're going there. So they're really critical for us to be able to get our, our meat to market. Because the alternative would be what? You having to purchase a, a truck with a refrigeration unit and, and bring it down yourself. Yeah, and, you know, at this point, maybe we could do that because our scale is enough, but certainly most people can't do that because they don't have the scale of production to pay for a truck to go down every week. 
and I'm not particularly interested in being in that business. Um, so, you know, the, what regional is, they're bringing lots of products down for lots of people from upstate and out to the Finger Lakes, and they're bringing them down to Manhattan, and then they're bringing stuff back up, you know, that comes into New York City that people want upstate, so the truck is full in both directions. Wow, that, you know, I, that's great. I didn't know that. Yeah, um, so driving, driving around with empty trucks is not a good idea. <laughs> uh, so we are at the end of our time slot here, but um, if people want to, I know you mentioned several places here in the city where they can find your product and they want to kind of learn more uh, about your farm, um, where else can they reach out to you? Well, you can go to my website, Slope Farms, one word, plural, uh, .com. Um, and uh, so it talks about the farm and tells it where, where our products are being sold and we actually do ship down to people in New York City, but you got to buy in bulk, you know, which is going to be either a quarter or a half or a whole steer, which is certainly something. That's a commitment, a delicious commitment. Or something to share. We, yeah. we, do, we do ship some down to New York, but mostly we're, you know, not so many. But most people in New York don't have freezers it's, or freezers that are big enough. Sure. But if you do, you know. Sign up. Check them out. Sign up, That's yeah. www.slopefarms.com. Ken, thank yep. you so much for um, sharing your insights on the show today. It was great to have you. Okay, thanks. It was fun. Great. Uh, no farm report next week. We will be heading down to the Florida Keys to celebrate the marriage of Patrick Martins. But if you don't have plans, you should definitely sign up for the No Farm, No Food rally that's happening next Wednesday up in Albany. You can find out more on www.farmland.org, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.